0: Well, we are going to be back again in the book of Jonah this morning. We're going to be in chapter 3. I'm going to give you a few minutes to find Jonah chapter 3 while I just uh, talk a a little bit about family business here. Um, We are going, God willing, uh, to return to um, adult Sunday morning Bible study, Sunday school classes uh, beginning in March on campus. Uh, That'll be March 7th. Uh, Begin meeting back here. Uh, in that capacity. Uh, Also, we'll start that week, the Wednesday night programming back, um, barring some kind of weird outbreak. I mean, I think we can all agree it has just been an unusual time uh, since just nearly this time last year, but that is uh, our intent, that's our hope, that's our desire. Um, You'll have more info coming your way via uh, e-news and the website and um, emails in the coming week, week and a half about that, but I just wanted to let you know we're still Planning um, on doing that. And uh, we'll also kick off on March 7th a new series, uh, another four week series that will lead us up to Palm Sunday uh, called I'm Not Okay. I'm Not Okay. And it's going to be a series about depression, anxiety, and the gospel. Depression, anxiety, or anxiety, depression, and the gospel, I guess, now that I can see the image. Um, I'm going to preach on whatever they tell me to preach on. Anxiety, depression, and the gospel. Um, One of the most destructive things you and I can do is act okay when we're not, and there's a lot of that that happens in the church. We're all fine when we're not. We're a mess inside, and God has not created us to relate to one another this way with uh, massive cases of finitis. Um, If we have a proper theology of community uh, arising from significant time in God's word, we understand that that part of what God's doing is he's forming a people, is teaching us, calling us out of, commanding us to take all the masks and the fakeness and the foolishness and the religiosity off and throw it away. And learn to listen to and love one another. And learn to give honest, appropriate, right? Like if you don't know somebody, there's no need to overshare. We all know those people, right? Um, but to just, to just be honest. Right, So we're going to talk about this. Uh, I, I know a lot of us, the, the last 10, 12 months, have, they've been a ride. They've been tough. Uh, my, my dad called me Wednesday. Uh, most of you know um, I'm from Texas. Our home state just was pummeled this last week. And um, I come from a ranching family, so there was a, a lot of stuff that they had to do out on the land still daily. But my dad called. My mom had, had fallen on the ice and, and cracked her ankle Tuesday And uh, I'm I'm looking at that, looking at uh, other friends walking through uh, sickness, uh, through once-in-a-century storms, um, some of what some of you are walking through right now, and I just thought, man, it has been 12 months. Has it not? I mean, isn't it hard to, to believe that we haven't even gotten to the point this time last year where we said, oh, man, everything's shutting down? Um, but that was a, it was a wild time. So we're going to dive into this and see uh, how does the gospel speak truth and stability and love into our lives when we walk through seasons of depression and anxiety. We're going to uh, define what we mean by that. We're going to roll out some resources that you guys can engage. And we're, gonna, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be the family of God in light of this. Um, all right. There's more I'd like to say, but I'm going to shift gears because I don't want to preach for 65 minutes. Let's, uh, let's jump into Jonah. Actually, I would like to, but let's jump into Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. And what we're going to discover this morning is what we need to rediscover and to hold on to quite often. And it is that God really, truly is a God of second chances and new beginnings and fresh starts and do-overs. That's not just a, a, a cute phrase. And if you're in touch with your own brokenness and your own sinfulness, that should produce a sense of joy and and gratitude in you that God's never done with you. Your teenagers might be on this day or that day. Your wife might be on this day or that day. Right? But God never is. Let's look at Jonah chapter 3. I'm just going to read the first four verses starting out. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Overthrown. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah was already understanding that God was the God of second chances. He's here because God didn't relent or give up on him when he said no the last time that God said to go to Nineveh and to speak to them about their sin on my behalf. Um, any of you seen a 2011 movie called Moneyball? Brad Pitt, Jonah Hill, the late... Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman in there. I, I love baseball, loved that movie. It was um, really based on a 2003 book by the same name by Michael Lewis and, and really centers around um, the use of cyber metrics in professional sports, starting with the Oakland A's. Uh, in the movie, Brad Pitt plays Billy Bean, who uh, is still though he's about to retire a front office executive with the Oakland A's. And what he came to just understand in the 2002 series and and run into was the fact that he can't compete. The Oakland A's couldn't compete with big budget ball clubs. They were trying to replace star players, and they didn't have the ability to do it. For instance, the the New York Yankees, who they competed with in 2002, had a $125 million payroll. The Oakland A's had a $44 million payroll. Now, can we just be honest for a minute? Let's imagine, as most of us did when we were seven, um, and we have an entire generation who delusionally, uh, parents my age and just younger, who actually believe this too. So uh, I joke, you know, they're putting their kids on creatine in kindergarten, getting them special coaches in first and second, because they're all going to be professional athletes. But let's imagine you have the skill and the doors open up. And then the New York Yankees say, hey, we can offer you $11.5 million to play for us. Or the Oakland A's say, we can offer you $3.2 million. right? It's not much of a choice, is it, aside from the winters in New York? Not much of a choice. You're going to go where the money is. And during this particular season, Billy Bean, with the help of some others, began to reframe how he thought about this. And he began to ask himself, are we trying to buy players and talent, or are we trying to buy wins? And ultimately, he said, we're trying to buy wins. And what do you have to do to win in baseball? You have to get on base. It doesn't matter how well you do everything else. If you don't get on base, you won't win. It's an offensive game, an offensive game, I should say. It is an offensive game. And so what they did was begin to look at players that had been rejected for, for a number of different reasons and see, could we put a ball club together based on what these guys do do well, get on base, that will help us compete this year. One of the guys uh, that they picked up was Scott Haddenberg. Scott Haddenberg was a former Boston Red Sox player who uh, had been a catcher, great player, but he had an elbow injury. He, he had nerve damage in his elbow, and if you can't throw consistently, you can't play the position of catcher, right? So he'd been released by the Boston Red Sox. Uh, In the movie, Scott Hattenberg is played uh, by Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt. And those of you that have seen the movie can remember that poignant scene where uh, Hattenberg's character, played by Chris Pratt, was at home after being released by the Red Sox. He's sitting in there, sort of wallowing in self pity. Sharon and I had a conversation yesterday about how self pity is one of the acceptable sins uh, in our day in the church. Uh, We'll talk more about that in coming weeks. But he's sort of wallowing in self-pity in there, watching TV. You can see his wife in the background in the kitchen trying to pay bills, uh, slowly tearing out a check. And um, Billy Bean calls him. He says, hey, Scott, Billy Bean, Oakland A's. He's like, oh, yeah, hi. Uh, He said, wonder if you'd be willing to talk with us. He says, sure. He says, would you let us in? And Hatterberg says, excuse me? He says, yeah, we're outside. Would Would you let us in? So he says, okay. So he goes to the door, lets them in. Um... He brings him, uh, Billy Bean comes in along with the, the first base coach, and they say, hey, look, uh, your time playing catcher is over, right? It's over. But we don't want you to catch. We want you to play first base. He's like, I've never played first base. I only play catcher. And uh, there's this, this great dialogue there where uh, Billy Bean, as the manager, says, uh, it's fine, it, it, anybody can play it, right? And the first base coach said, it's terribly hard to play first base but what they realized what what Billy Bean realized is they they could attract all kinds of players that other people had rejected right they'd been cast aside and there's a great scene where where Bean is sitting in with a bunch of older tenured scouts who who simply most of them could not conceive of a new way of scouting and thinking about about baseball and he's in this meeting with them now and he says look boys it's it's adapt or die time this is, this is where we are. But you're hearing them talk, and if you've seen this, you can remember, they're like, ah, you know, this guy, he's too short. This guy, he's too tall. Now, this guy will be good. You know, he's got a good jawline. He'll, he'll have a good profile when he's up to bat. All kinds of nonsense like that. And one of them says, yeah, but, it, but his girlfriend is a six at best. That's actually funny. But uh, And then uh, people worry me sometimes on Sunday. And then uh, somebody asks us, why does that matter? He says, ugly girlfriend means low self-confidence. And so they're going through all of this stuff. But what happened in 2002 was a lot, of, a lot of ball players got second chances, right, that they would not otherwise have had. Friends, we serve a God of second chances. And you're going to blow it sometimes. Some of you blew it this morning. Some of you need to do over today. You need to say, honey, I didn't mean what I said when you were taking a little bit longer to get ready. Right, you husbands need to do some repenting. Some of us who are parents in this room, you, like you already blew it with your kids this morning, right? I mean, you screamed at them all the way here. They're like, get out. We love Jesus. Let's worship. Let's make much of him. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Don't wallow where you are when you blow it. Get up. God says, get up. I expect you to fail. And as you're walking with me, my spirit's going to strengthen you. My spirit's going to shape you. Jonah uh, Jonah may be the king of second chances in Scripture. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 and kind of walk through them. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. We lose it a bit in the English, but it's the exact same wording in Hebrew as chapter 1, verse 1. The writer of Jonah is saying God had already given this call to Jonah and Jonah rejected it. Ever been there? If you've ever tried to follow God closely, obediently, with a tender, soft heart, you've been there. When God said, let's go, and you said, I don't think so. God said, you've got to stay, and you said, I'm out. All right? You'll be wherever I'm headed, I'm sure. But the wording is intentional here. He's saying Jonah got a second chance, and by the grace and mercy of God, he got it right this time. The word of the Lord came to him again. And he said, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. It's interesting. That language is interesting. Go to the great city of Nineveh. We we know that the Assyrians were a brutal people. We've talked about that. They were a godless pagan people. They were about as far from God as you could get. And the capital city of Nineveh would not have been great by most of our thinking. And I don't don't really know why God describes it as great here. Maybe it was great to God in that God cared deeply about the people of Nineveh even though they were so far from him, so lost in their sin and debauchery and evil and violence, and pagan worship. Maybe it was great before God. Maybe God was simply acknowledging that there were few cities in the ancient world that were the size and scope of Nineveh. Just as you would say, New York City is a great city, or London is a great city, or Tokyo is a great city, large and vast because of its size. Maybe it was great because of God. Maybe it was a great city because of God, because it was filled with people who, though lost in their sin, were created in the image of God. And God loved. And when he looked down on them in their sin, he saw nonetheless through their sin and through their brokenness and through their fallenness, glimpses of his image. He gives Jonah a second chance. And he sends Jonah to Nineveh to give the Assyrians a second chance at living in a different way, under God's grace and his mercy, rather than his judgment. You know, John chapter 6, Jesus says that no one comes to him, but that the Father draws them. It's this great statement of the sovereignty of God in human redemption. And there's a mystery there we don't understand. But for those of you who are in Christ this morning, for those of you who by Christ's mercy saw and understood your sin at some point and the glory and goodness of God offered you in Jesus Christ and in his victory on the cross and you said, yes, Lord, I want that, I need that. What Jesus is saying is that God was at work behind the scenes there drawing you in. None of you in here this morning are here by accident. We don't drift toward God. Now, I know some of you are like, "And my spouse made me come. My parents made me come. Don't kid yourself. There's someone at work behind all of that. God's sending Jonah to Nineveh to get the attention of the Assyrians to show them grace because he's a God of grace. But it's not a cheap grace. God's grace is not cheap. It demands nothing of you and everything of you. Jesus said, here's how you follow me. You lay your life down in submission to me. I become Lord and Master. The only question is, can we go to God's word and simply read God's will and obey? Say, yes, Lord. This is what's going on in the life of Jonah and in parallel ways is about to be happening in the lives of the Assyrians that hear his message. God expects obedience from Jonah when he gives him the second chance here, right? The word of the Lord comes to him again, and this time Jonah goes. It is God's grace, but it is not cheap. Grace always calls us in to deeper and deeper levels of obedient living. It just whispers the truth to us that we can't do that by our human will. Any of you ever try to make a major life change just through sheer will? Anybody been there? Like, you will start exercising consistently and tenaciously for 60 minutes a day. Five days a week. Starting now forever. We never start now, starting tomorrow, right? Starting tomorrow For the rest of your life. You're going to will yourself into physical fitness. Anybody ever done that and found it fade a little bit? Yeah. Three of you. Anybody ever willed yourself into healthy eating and it lasted about 72 hours? Yeah, there we go. Now we're hitting the right buttons. Yeah. God says, look, my grace calls you into complete obedience, but my spirit empowers you little by little to live out that obedience. Um, One more movie reference, probably one more. Um, Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan. Most of you have probably seen that movie. Tom Hanks plays Cat Miller. He's a a captain of um, a a group of rangers that are given a unique mission. Um, And it's, it's oddly historic. You can find some of the background for it. Um, if you read about it. But these rangers were sent to find one private in the 101st Airborne named Ryan and get him safely out of the European Theater of Operations because he was one of four brothers who had enlisted or been drafted and he was the only one still living. The other three had been killed on D-Day or immediately after. And so their high command said, We've got to get this son back home to his parents. His family has given enough in this effort. If you remember um, the final battle scene, they do find him and they've got to hold a bridge, both for Allied forces to get up and be able to cross, but also to prevent German forces from counterattacking and crossing it. It's one of the few bridges intact. And Tom Hanks' character ends up getting killed. He gets mortally wounded. And he whispers something into Private Ryan's ear, played by Matt Damon. If you remember, he says, earn this. Earn it. Now, I will tell you this. You and I earn nothing before God. We earn nothing from God. That's impossible. But what Tom Hanks' character was saying is that men gave their lives for you. Don't waste yours in idle pursuits. And I think sometimes you and I have become so comfortable with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that it doesn't stir us anymore, doesn't shock us and stun us, doesn't move us to tears. That Jesus would say, No one takes my life. But I give it up voluntarily. God's calling us to a new way of life. And he's about to offer this new life through Jonah to the Assyrians. Look at verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. Now, the wording here is playful. If you look at chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah ran away. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. He ran. The word of the Lord came to Jonah again. And he obeyed. I am so grateful for the patient goodness of God who doesn't pull the curtain on our lives prematurely but continues to woo us and whisper to us, Get up. Get up. I'm not done with you yet. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Imagine walking from the northern city limits of Atlanta to the southern city limits of the Atlanta. Now I know, like if you're built like me, you're like, could do it in a day. Could do it. I was I was working on this, uh, thinking about this and thinking, all right, how 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 long or how far can the average person get in an hour? I could probably get time and a half that. So if you're winding a certain way, you're thinking, no problem. But you know, I, I will tell you, if you've walked the the streets of Manhattan and ever been caught up on the, hey, let's go see this, forget a cab, let's just Like, let's just book it on foot, it's not that far. On the map, it's not far. Block by block by block by block, it gets to be far. Nineveh was a huge city. And you're walking it, and you're walking it with carts and donkeys and vendors and people and soldiers everywhere. So he goes into it basically a day's journey, verse 4 says, proclaiming 40 more days... And Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the wording here is that Jonah is regularly preaching this message. That the judgment of God is coming unless you repent. The judgment of God is coming unless you repent. Now, let's look at verses 5 through 10. The Ninevites believed God. A fast "...was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth." This this outer representation of inward repentance. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, hopefully he was wearing royal clothes underneath, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. "...by the decree of the king and his nobles..." Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, don't be confused about that language there, he had threatened. It's not that God was making a threat with no intention of bringing that about. He absolutely intended to bring that about. And one of the things that you discover when you take the Old Testament seriously is that you and I have an an opportunity to be in relationship with God as the living creator of the universe, not in relationship with doctrines, not in relationship with precepts, not in relationship with laws, but in relationship with God, with the God who interacts with his people and sometimes relents, sometimes decides he's not going to carry out something That he intended to carry out. It doesn't affect his sovereignty any. It reveals. The relational nature of God. Toward his people. He is willing to judge. But he longs to show mercy. God's willing to judge. And he will. One day. Judge all of humanity. Living and dead. But he longs. He longs to show mercy. Anytime you meet someone who's perpetually angry in the church, right, and damages other people, they have this flipped in their thinking. Probably not consciously, but subconsciously, they believe that God is willing to show mercy, but longs to judge. That he's bitter and angry and vindictive. Not a God of compassion, loving kindness and gentleness he's willing to judge but he longs to show mercy we see here that God takes sin seriously we have gotten not just as a culture I expect it as a culture we've gotten as a church in the west a little too comfortable with sin a little too comfortable with sin God takes it very seriously because it's not just that that the created order might be out of whack or something it's because sin is an affront against him Sin is open rebelliousness toward God. And we see here, if you look carefully, that we see that true repentance involves both sorrow, this inward sense of, of guilt and the response to guilt and sorrow, and, a, and an inward turning over our sin, and a hunger for God. Never, like, never fear coming clean with God. You think He doesn't know who you are? Right? Right? You think he's like, oh man, I didn't realize that. Never mind. He knows you. He knows you more than you know you. He's not shocked by who you are. He loves you. He loves you as you sit here this morning. With all your flaws. And all your doubts. He loves you. Look at verse 5. The Ninevites believed god they believed god this is a picture of redemptive belief you'll notice in scripture that it never talks about radical belief or awesome belief or or significant belief you put a modifier an adjective in front of belief and it makes it appear that you and i have some work to do in it but it's all of god god sends this message through jonah and the ninevites believed god A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. The gospel begins penetrating all of their hearts. The wealthy, the poor, those with status, those without status, bosses, and employees. Everybody's overcome with a sense of guilt and repentance around their sin. Now, you know what's funny is the people, they begin this this um this posture of repentance before the word reaches the king now when the word reaches the king he takes off his royal clothes he puts on sackcloth he's repentant and then he sends out this decree that basically says keep doing what you're doing by my decree anybody ever known it to take a little while for the the will and the voice of the people to catch up to rulers it's always been this way now look at Uh, Look at verse 8. He says, Let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. That's interesting. I thought about that a lot this week. Like, if you took the Uber donkey to Nineveh, it's not so hard to cover your donkey with sackcloth, but imagine they had pet cats. Right. Imagine there was a cat lady. Right. Maybe she's got 13, 14 cats. She's got to cover her cats with sackcloth. I wish we had video of them out trying to cover, you know, throw it up on camels, sometimes you throw it over. Uh, we, uh, the house that we rented when we first moved here is we're kind of getting to know the area and uh, hoping uh, to buy once we settle in here and find our, our way around a bit. Um, it has this real unique layout, you come in uh, to like this this open area in the front of the house and you can go up the stairs there, turn around and there's this sort of like a catwalk is not the right phrase but you get my drift there's sort of this bridge that goes out across the top um, with a banister on each side uh, rails up there and sometimes I'll get frustrated and throw things up there that the kids should have taken up right but I've asked eight or nine or 14 times and I'm just tired so I'll throw it up there sometimes I'll throw it over and then I have to go pick it up again because I missed I was really frustrated the other day, and I was throwing socks up. Did any of you raise children whose socks could not make it into the the dirty clothes hamper? All right. And you're still fairly sane. That's good to know. Socks make their way everywhere in our house. So I rolled them up real tight like a baseball, and I launched that sucker. And I threw it right through the rails down onto the other side and created more work for myself. Then I had to go over and walk and pick it up. Maybe they're throwing sackcloth on the camel. It goes over the camel. I don't know. But they're dressing themselves and their animals. They're saying all living beings here are taking on a posture of repentance before God. Verse 9, the king says, who knows? God may yet relent with compassion. It's interesting to me that this pagan king identifies here that it's going to be God's compassion that drives His relenting and His saving of them, not any other characteristic. With compassion turned from His fierce anger so that we will not perish. Can I just say that true repentance always leads to interchange and outer fruit, an outer articulation of that repentance there's sort of this weird line that we say a lot in the church in the West right now uh, about being followers of Jesus. And it has no, no theological uh, basis, but we're like, ah, oh, you just never know. Just never really know if anyone's a follower of Jesus. That's insane. Because Jesus said we'd know. He said, You're going to know my followers, you'll know my disciples. First of all, you'll know them because of the unique love that they have. For one another. Friends, that's why you don't get to just be an independent individual Christian out somewhere. There's no evidence at all that God's done anything in your life apart from your interaction with other followers of Jesus. But Jesus also said there's gonna be this driving love in you for brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to want to be with them, even as dysfunctional as we all are. We're going to want to be together. You know, part of what's made this last year so hard for the people of God, is that we've been forced to be apart, And I'm not making a political statement here. Don't put that on me. That's your mess. I'm saying anyone... Well, I'm going to be careful here. I'm saying the best information we could get said and continues to say mask wearing and separation is helpful. It's how we slow this thing down. It's how we're going to get a hold of it. And as the New Testament teaches us over and over, to live in submission to God to one another and to the authorities as much as we are able we're going to do that it's been hard to be separated hasn't it we've got a whole host of people watching online this morning it's hard to be separated god's designed us to be together that desire together with other believers and to live our lives out with one another Is part of what marks disciples of Jesus. Along with the fruit of the Spirit and all kinds of other things. Love for God. Love for others. The desire to help fulfill the Great Commission. There's an inward change, but it's articulated and seen in outward fruit. Something was awakened in the Assyrians as Jonah spoke. And God saw it, verse 10 says, and he relented. In a sense, in an Old Testament sense, revival broke out among this pagan people. And it started with Jonah saying yes to God instead of no to God. And if you think that can still happen, God can still bring revival to his people. It can start with us and spread where God draws men and women in. Redemption is happening. New groups are being birthed. Reconciliation is taking place in marriages. People are being freed by the power of the Holy Spirit from addictions. God is on the move in such a way that no one can take credit for it as a human being. I don't know if any of you will be familiar with Jeremiah Lampier. Probably not. Uh, But if you're not, I want to introduce you to him. He was a a layman, a Dutch Reformed Church layman in New York City in the 19th century. Mid-19th century, and he just began to get a great hunger to see God work and move and stir in the city of New York. And he began believing that God wanted to do that, and he started praying. And then he decided he wanted other men to join him and pray. And he asked God, would you send men to pray with me? that revival would break out in this great city. On September 23rd, 1857, he started meeting at a rented hall on Fulton Street in New York. At lunchtime, he'd take his lunch break. And he walked to this hall and he said, God, would you send men to pray with me? And he got there and he began praying and five minutes passed and ten minutes passed and twenty minutes passed. Any of you ever been there in your prayer life? You're like, God, I asked, and I asked a lot, and I asked, and I said in Jesus' name. And you're still not moving. Eventually, the first man came in to join him. Eventually, six men joined him that morning. And within a few months, there were over 10,000 men gathering and praying at lunchtime all throughout the city of New York. Now, I can envision 10,000 women gathering to pray. But it is a breakout of the Spirit of God when 10,000 men start taking their lunch hour together and pray. And revival began breaking out in New York City. People began coming to all different kinds of churches and hearing the gospel and being saved. And it spread from New York to Maine and California and Oregon. And eventually became what church historians call the, the Third Great Awakening. It spread overseas. But to England, down to Brazil, to New Zealand, to Australia. And men and women were coming to faith in Christ. And millions around the globe were praying and churches were flooded with people. There's a sculpture that you can still see on the street outside King's College in New York City of Jeremiah Lampier sitting there. Sometimes people will come and sit down beside him and have their pictures taken just saying that we're praying with you. That God will do something. Remarkable. And can I just tell you, we don't have to wait for Jonah to show up and tell us about God. Jesus has already come. And he said, you want to know what God looks like? You want to know who he is? You want to know how he relates to you? Look at me. He said, come, all of you who are weary, who are weighed down by burdens, and take my way on you. My way leads to life and rest and rest and renewal jesus was gentle and loving with people he met people where they are i want to ask you this morning would you begin praying that revival would break out in your own heart in your household and would you have the faith to believe that god can do it again here that's my prayer would you stand and join me this morning